your place. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalms 51. I'll tell you, we had a fantastic time last night, didn't we? We started at 8 o'clock and went to what time? One, one thirty. You know, I could, I could hardly believe. Uh, people, people just amaze me so much. The uh, reason why is because on Christmas everybody was saying, how long is the service going to be? It's not going to be very long, is it? And I said, well, I'm not really for sure. I didn't announce any time. Well, I thought it was an hour. I said, no, I never said an hour. You know. And then several people asked me about today, how long is our service going to last? Well, you see, the, the funny thing about all this is that that uh, we could go all day and all night, and, and you folks just sit right here, and then when we dismiss, you'd still want to go ahead and have church, you know. And yet you're asking, how long is the service going to be? <laughs> So I'm not going to commit myself as to how long it's going to be, but we've been going 37 minutes already, and uh, <clears throat> we're ready for preaching. Psalm 51, and this is continuing with the same thing that we talked about last evening, and Brother Crowder will be talking about, and that's attitudes. David, after he had sinned, he had become an adulterer. He is seeking a cleansing from God. He is praying his prayer of repentance. He says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Okay, you may be seated. Verse 12, we continue to read. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. <clears throat> now David, while I do not believe that the Old Testament saints were baptized with the Holy Ghost as we are, it would be very difficult to prove that God's Spirit did not reside in and upon them. Now, I know a lot of people say that in the Old Testament that they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, it'd be kind of hard to say. I used to think that. But they did not have the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues that regenerated the man like we have today. But we do find some very definite proofs in the Old Testament of the Spirit of the Lord residing in people. Jeremiah said, it's like fire shut up outside of my bones. No, he said, in my bones. See? Now... David was asking God, don't take away your Holy Spirit from me. While we do things that we should not do, we commit sins that we should not commit. God's Spirit doesn't just jump in and out of us. You know, I used to think that every time you did something wrong, the Holy Spirit just left you. 
Then you had to repent and it came back in you. And then you, you made a mistake and jumped back out of you. And you repented and it came back in you. And the reason why I, <clears throat> I thought that is because someone told me that, that the Holy Spirit would not dwell in an unclean temple. And if I had sin in my heart, simply means that I'm unclean inside, and so uh, the Holy Spirit wasn't going to dwell there. Well, first place, remember this. The Holy Spirit not dwelling in an unclean temple is not a scripture. Okay? I believe in order to receive the Spirit of the Lord, your heart must be clean and pure. And the unclean spirit that's inside of you must leave. And your heart must be swept clean for God to come and live in you. But I do not believe that every time you make a mistake, the Holy Ghost just leaves you. Now let me explain something. Sin is a transgression against the law of God. Quite often, new people in the faith do things that are wrong, that are scripturally wrong. They transgress against the law of God and they don't even know it. And yet at the same time, they're talking in tongues around the altar and worshiping the Lord. And somebody comes up and says, you know, you're doing something that's not right. What? Well, here's what you're doing. And they point out scriptural things that are wrong. Now, that has to be sin. And yet they were talking in tongues and such, and they, they, they just didn't know that they were doing something wrong. Now, God didn't just forsake them. He didn't just jump out of them and leave. <clears throat> and sit out there kind of in limbo waiting for them to repent so he could jump back in. <clears throat> it just doesn't work that way. Now, I will say this. I do not believe that God will reside in a person's heart who becomes a sinner. Now, you may say, well, I thought you associated sin with a sinner. But in the Bible, the sinner is a person who forsakes God, turns his back on God, and he abides or continues in sin. Now, the, the Holy Spirit's going to leave that individual. But <clears throat> notice what happened here. David had committed sin. And, of course, he, he went on to say, Cast not away thy holy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Ghost was still there. Now, if David lived on this side of the cross in the church age, it does not mean <clears throat> that he would be rapture ready. The rapture could actually take place and him not go up. He knew that committing adultery was not right. And it doesn't mean that he was rapture ready, but... At the same time, doesn't mean the Holy Ghost had departed from him. Now, in Matthew 25, when Jesus gave the parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins. Now, the Bible says at midnight they all slumbered and slept. The scripture tells us that there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. They all rose and trimmed their lamps, and <clears throat> five of those virgins trimmed their lamps. They had oil burning, bright lights. The other five said, Give us of your oil, 
for our lamps, our lights, are, have gone out. Now, the King James Version said our lamps have gone out. As far as I can find in the original Greek text, it does not say our lamps have gone out. It says our lamps are going out. Now, that means they were in a backslidden condition. To backslide, it simply means that you slide backwards. See? Now, when the bridegroom came, they were out trying to check out the oil situation. They were concerned. But when the bridegroom came and opened the door, they were locked outside of the presence of the Lord. Were their lamps all the way out? They were in a backslidden condition, and they did not go with the bridegroom. So that's when I make these statements, that's not from me. I am not saying, and I want to clarify this, I'm not saying that I believe that if David lived in our present time that he would have been rapture ready. I believe the contrary. I do not believe he would have been rapture ready. But at the same time, because he had committed sin, it does not mean that the Holy Ghost had departed from him. His plea was, don't let it depart from me. I have done wrong. He said, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, we were all born in sin. The shaping in iniquity simply means that he had lived a life from the time of his birth in which he became shapen in the form of iniquity. Now, I don't, I don't really believe that little children that are born in sin... If they die when they are an infant, I don't believe that God cast those children into hell. Now, the, the ecclesiastical church world, taking their doctrine from the Roman church, basically believes that. They believe in the original sin concept. And this is why they baptize infants. Because of the original sin concept. That you were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Well, while we are born in sin, shaping an iniquity takes place as we become transgressors against the law of God. See? And so as a result, it's hard for me to believe that children who die prior to receiving the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are cast into hell. Now, David says, I was born in sin, I was sheep in iniquity. All he was saying here is, hey, Lord, I've done wrong. And let me tell you why I've done wrong. Because I was born a sinner, and I've been shaping in iniquity. And then, of course, he goes on to, to pour his heart out to God. And he said, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be made whiter than snow. Make me to hear the joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out mine iniquities. Create in me a new spirit, O God, or create a, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, renewing a right spirit here is not talking about the Holy Ghost, that he's pleading uh, that would not depart from him. But it's simply saying, Give me the right attitude, Lord. I need the right attitude. Now, you see, what happens when you get in a backslidden condition, 
you develop wrong attitudes. Now, when I say backslidden condition, to slide backwards, it just simply means that at one point in your life, you were closer to God than what you are now. Now, that simply means you've slid backwards. Now, that's what backsliding means. You see, while our experience in life and with God is up and down like a roller coaster, you're going to feel closer to God now than perhaps you did at other times. And there will be a time in which you'll feel further away from God than what you do now. Because our experience with God is that way. Why is it that way? Because we rub shoulders with a real world that's so physical. And physical conditions do have a bearing on your relationship with God. However, in, in your devotion and consecration to, to God, it should be an uphill thing all the way. You should strive to grow closer and closer and closer and closer with God and more like the Lord every day. Strive for that high calling that I spoke to you about last evening. So, basically, the spirit or the attitude of a man then is determined largely by his knowledge of God, his knowledge of the family of God, and his knowledge of the world. And it becomes more correct as he gets closer and closer and closer to God. Now, I want to point out something in the Bible about our attitude toward God. This is the first area of great concern. I deal with the the priorities of a Christian, the three areas in which uh, we have established our priorities. Our number one priority is God. Now, the Scripture gives us definite examples of men who had, had such outstanding attitudes toward God. Now, a man in the Old Testament that comes to my attention that had an outstanding attitude toward God was a man by the name of Job. Now, you see, the reason why I point your attention to this is because in his experience with God, You know, he had his high points and his low points. But you see, his consecration toward God was, was, was there, even though his experience was up and down. You know, you have to admit that there are days when you're on the mountaintop, and there are days when you are intentionally cast down in the valley. God doesn't just leave you on cloud nine all the time. And if you can find out a way in which you can live on cloud nine, please, when you find out, stand up and share it with all of us. I have not yet been able to stay up there. I have uh, scratched and clawed and hung on to the mountaintops for days and days, but somehow I always come back down to the valley. I have my valley experiences. Now, I feel it's necessary, however, that my attitude toward God remains good and pure. Now, you see, this man by the name of Job was a perfect man, an upright man. He was one that feared God with all of his house. Now, the Bible says he was a perfect man. You can't get much better than that. But nevertheless, the Lord, because of a challenge that Satan made... 
the Lord says, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you go down and I'll let you try this man by the name of Job. You see, the devil was saying that Job serves you because of all of the abundant blessings that you put upon him. God says, that's not true. And the devil says, okay, I will show you. Now, the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. Now, he stands in the presence of God to make accusation against you. And you see, not only that, but he visits you and he accuses you. You know, you can make a little mistake like David made. And the first thing the devil wants to do is jump right on your back, whisper in your ear and say, Ha ha, look what you've done. And you can't make it. You're not spiritual. You might as well give up. This living this Christian life is too hard. You ever had the devil do that? And then you'd pray and you'd just pray and pray. And it seems like you don't really get the victory. And he comes and says, Well, why try? You know, and after a while you feel so alienated from the body of the Christ. Isn't that right? Now, when this happens, then your attitude begins to change. So when you get around a brother, you don't feel that warmth there. You don't feel that closeness. And when you kneel down to pray, you don't even feel worthy to even call upon his name. And then when you get around the people that are out in the world... You begin to feel just like them. Well, I know better than they are. Has that ever happened to you? See, he's the accuser of the brethren. I'll tell you one thing about the devil. <clears throat> he does his work and he does it good. Doesn't he? <clears throat> he really does. If you want to find someone that's el prompto in his business, the devil is. I mean to tell you, he's always there. I told him, Brother Felix, last night, I said, you know, this uh, brother, brother Keith said, turn around and tell someone, I just love to love the Lord. So I told Brother Felix, I said, I just love to love the Lord. And something else, I just love to hate the devil. You see, the devil does his work so well that he's the type of individual that I just love to hate. See? He just, he knows how to do his business. And so he made this accusation. Now what happened then, he visited Job's household. And when he visited Job's household, the Bible says that he took from him all of his cattle. He took from him all of his sheep. He also destroyed his earthly possessions and, and took from him his, his family. And then Job's wife came to him and said, now what do you think of this? And Job began to evaluate his life, and notice how his attitude toward God remained right. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Isn't that great? He said, naked came I into this world and naked shall I return. In other words, he was saying, I didn't have anything to start with and I don't have anything now. And when I leave, I won't have anything. I can't take it into eternity with me. So, what difference does it make? Now you see, here's a man that was in the valley. But what kind of an attitude did he have toward God? 
You see? Now, Job wrote the first book of the Bible. The book of Job was, in all probability, written before the book of Genesis because Job lived in the age of the patriarchs around the time of Abraham. Now, Moses wrote the book of Genesis 400 and something years later. So, Job didn't really have a Bible. He wrote the first book of the Bible. You know, he's not blessed like us. We can just take the Bible and we can sit down and we can learn so much of God. See, Job was a very careful man, though. His consecration toward God was just so outstanding. Did you know Job offered a sacrifice daily for the sins of his family? And he was so careful that the scripture bears witness of this. The Bible says he offered sacrifices for the sins that his children, for his children, you see, because he was the priest of his household for the sins they might have committed, not the ones they committed. He just wanted to be so careful to put everything under the blood. Whether they did or not, Lord, we're going to take care of this. And you see what happens to us sometimes when we're on the mountaintop, we don't keep everything under the blood. You follow what I'm saying? Because it's real easy when you're on the mountaintop to just kind of forget about your life for a while. And this is the reason why that a lot of us develop self-righteous attitudes. God can bless us and bless our households and give us new things and abundant an abundance of blessings. And it's real easy for us then to come in the house of the Lord or to go in our place of devotion and kneel down upon our knees and, and fail to remember that we were born in sin and shapen in iniquity and that the devil has a, a hot line to our life by virtue of the fallen flesh that we wear, this robe of flesh that we wear. We need to be careful because, you see, we cannot always discern our hearts. And this is why we have to get down and make sure that we take care of everything. How often should we repent? I believe that a person should repent every day. You know, sometimes we talk about praying through the Holy Ghost. To a lot of us, praying through the Holy Ghost is just talking in tongues. You know, we just get down and we just start, hey, praise God, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Listen, that's not the approach that we make when we pray through. When we pray through, we kneel at his feet unworthily and we begin to call upon his name and say, now, Lord, I live in this world and I'm susceptible to sin. You might not even be able to think of anything that you've done, but God, I need you. Everything that I have, you've given to me. Lord Jesus, I don't deserve all of this. But God, I want you to know that I love you. So I want you to know, Lord, that I want to be pure and holy like you. So come, Lord Jesus, and, and wash my heart clean again as Job. You see, his attitude was right when he was in the valley because when he was on the mountaintop, he kept his attitude right then. So his experience was like this. But his consecration was, it was uphill all the way. And then the devil came back and accused him. And so, 
the Lord says, well, you can go down and touch his life, but you can't take his life. And great boils, sores came all upon him, and his friends thought he was just a messy sight. What profit do you get out of serving the Lord? But you know what? Evidently, Job even thought that the Lord might destroy him or allow him to be destroyed. And this is what he said, Though God slay me, yet will I trust him. The three Hebrew children that went into the fiery furnace, when they stood before the king, they didn't tell the king, Go ahead and cast us in, for God will deliver us. They didn't say that. Did they say that? Read the account very careful. They, they put an if in there. If our God delivers us. In other words, He might not deliver us, but even if He doesn't, we're still not going to bend our knees. We're willing to give our life for our God because He has been just that good for, to us. Now I want to just show you something. While I don't want to criticize a great man of God, I'd like for you to turn back to the book of Genesis. And I want to show you something about Jacob. The 28th chapter of the book of Genesis. <clears throat> Jacob left his father's household to travel to Haran. And on his road there, on the road there, he fell asleep. He was in distress. He needed God. This is when the Lord showed him that great vision of the ladder that reached from heaven to earth and the angels of God ascending and descending. The Bible says that, that Jacob was so afraid. He said, oh, how dreadful is this, is this place. Verse 17, this is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. He named the place Bethel. Do you know what the word Bethel means? It means the house of God. When we call this place the house of God, this, that simply means this is our Bethel. It's a dreadful place. It's the gate of heaven. I think we ought to look at church like that. That's why I like to come to church. Really. I miss very few services. I love to come to church. Now, there's several reasons why I love to come to church. Because I like to hear the Word of God. I do a lot of preaching here. Doesn't mean I like to hear myself. But there are other people who preach. I need, you know, I have other people who stand behind the pulpit. I need messages like Brother Keith preached to us last night. Wasn't that an outstanding message that he gave to us? I need that. I love that. And then, of course, to be with you folks. Well, I'm going to spend eternity with you. I love you. I like to rub shoulders with you. It's the gate of heaven. Now notice what. And Jacob rose up early in the morning. He took a stone <clears throat> that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. In other words, he anointed it. He named the place Bethel, the city that was called Luz at first. 
Now notice what happened, verse 20. And Jacob vowed a vow saying, If the Lord will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth to thee. This is when Jacob established the tithing plan in his life. He says, now, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start paying my tithes. I'll tell you the reason why. But now, if you notice the prayer that, that Jacob prayed, well, I don't want to be critical. I just want to point out something. Jacob's name had not yet been changed. The word Jacob means supplanter. His name later was called, after he left Haran, later his name was changed to Israel, a prince with God. When I read this, I detect something in Jacob's attitude that wasn't quite right. You may say, what was it? You notice what, how Jacob bargained with the Lord. At this time, Jacob was not really selling out the way that God wanted him to sell out. And that's the reason why in the land of Iran, he stayed there for 20 years, and he stayed there under his father-in-law's thumb, and he had a lot of problems. What do you detect in this? Jacob was bargaining with the Lord. This is what he said. If the Lord will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat. In other words, he's saying this. God, if you'll bless me, you know what I'll do? I'll let you be my God. And if you'll bless me, I'll pay my tithes. Now that's what he was saying. It really shouldn't be that way. It should be like Job, though you slay me, God, I'm still going to trust you. You notice how he bargained with God? You see, there's something in his prayer that detects the attitude that he has toward God that's not quite the way that it ought to be. Now let me show you a contrasting prayer that's prayed by a prophet by the name of Habakkuk. The third chapter. Okay. Habakkuk prayed this prayer. <clears throat> the third chapter. Verse 17. When he closed his prophecy. This is what he prayed. Although the fig tree shall not blossom. Neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet, notice how he prays, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. In other words, God, I'm still going to rejoice in you, I'm still going to trust you. 
if the fig trees do not have their figs and the fields are barren and there's no new flocks in the stalls, he said, I still rejoice in the joy of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds feet. He's talking about like the feet of the deer. You notice how his attitude was. It's quite contrasted with the attitude of Jacob. Now remember Jacob's name had not yet been changed. Jacob's character was not yet what God wanted it to be when he prayed. Did Jacob become blessed of God in the land of Haran? Sure he did. Why? Because you see it had been established that a man should pay his tithes. And you see, that's a law of God. And the law of God states if you will pay your tithing, God will bless you. And I tell people, whether you don't like to pay your tithing or not, go ahead and pay them. God's going to bless you anyway. You mean, even if I don't like it, friend, you can be so mad you want to kick the stars out of the heavens. But when the law of God says you'll be blessed for doing it, you'll be blessed for doing it. So go ahead and do it. Now, you see, tithing is not giving. See, in the book of Malachi, when it says you rob me of tithes, it says tithes and offerings. An offering is a gift. Tithing is not an offering. This is the reason why we use the term, I paid my tithes. Now, you don't pay offerings. You pay bills. You mean... My tithing is a bill. It's something you owe God. Why? Because it's His. You know why you use the term, I pay a bill? Because you see, they loan you the money. They give you $400 from the bank and they say, now you return this. This is my $400 and you return this at $40 a month. And you pay. Why? Because you see, it belongs to them. See, the tithing is the Lord's. See? So you can just get so mad you want to kick the stars out of the heavens. Go ahead and pay those tithing. God's going to bless you. That's why God blessed Jacob at Haran. But you see, Jacob's attitude was, was portrayed in his prayer when he says, Now God, I'll tell you, if you'll bless me, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If you'll put your hand upon me, and, and you know, if everything I do just turns to gold, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to be real good to you, Lord. <clears throat> but the prophet Habakkuk said, even if you don't, Lord, I'm still going to trust you. I'm going to still believe in you. You're going to be my great God. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. My feet will be like the hind's feet. God will make me to walk in the high places. Isn't that a great attitude that he had toward God? You know, I want my attitude toward God to always be right. Now, I've personally seen a lot of people that, that, that accuse God of certain things. I can never understand, never understand anybody that would become mad at God. You know, it takes a pretty simple mind to become mad at God. 
How can you become mad at such a powerful force? I've even heard people say, I went down to the altar and I told the Lord, Now, Lord! You know, they have no fear. Well, all God has to do to scare the daylights out of you is just say, Boo, real loud. And you're talking like that. God has the power to rain blessings upon you, upon your business, upon your household, and upon everything that you touch. And He has the power to withdraw. Renew the right attitude in me, O Lord. That's what David was saying. I lost my fear. My attitude toward God was not right. Now our attitude toward our brother, this is such an important thing. I'll tell you, it's such an important thing. I, I want you to know one thing. I appreciate the fellowship that we have here at Calvary Gospel Church. I really appreciate this. This is just just the greatest place on the earth to, to be involved in the work of the Lord. And I really feel that way. Jesus talked about our attitude in Matthew 5. <clears throat> Verse 22. The central theme of the New Testament is to love the Lord. A theme that is stressed on almost a near equal basis in the, in the epistles is our love for our brothers. Matthew 5, 22. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. Now the word Raka means you rascal, you scrandal. He's a real rascal. Now, what Jesus is saying, now that's not the right attitude that you should have toward your brother. I keep pointing over this way, Brother Cox. I just happen to do that because it's just natural, you know. Okay. <clears throat> Notice what he says. And whosoever shall say to his brother, thy fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Wow. You know, every now and then, I pick up little drifts where somebody's made fun of somebody. Well, you're talking about getting under my skin in a hurry. I meant something that really makes me angry with a cause. <clears throat> See, it says, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. I think I have reason to go to anybody as a pastor of this church and say, look, you're in danger of burning in hell with your attitude toward your brother. See, Jesus said to look at your brother and say, thy fool. You know, what Jesus was saying is, <clears throat> none of us have any reason to judge another one. 
You know, you cannot judge someone until you know what they're going through. You may see a weak brother or a weak sister, even one that does something that you shouldn't do. Suppose you see somebody that sins. Now the Bible says, if a man sins, restore such a one. See, human nature says, oh, if he makes a mistake, boot him out. I mean, kick him in the teeth. I mean, this is a blood wash, clean church without spot nor wrinkle. You know. All of us are looking for a perfect assembly. You know. Like I said not long ago, you know. The lady is looking for a perfect church. I said, when you find it, don't join it. You'll spoil it. You see, <clears throat> there has to be in the body of Christ some toleration. Because you see, if there is no toleration, then what's going to happen when you make a mistake? See, we all would lift our hands and say, oh yes, I made a mistake and please understand I'll probably make another one. But deep down inside, we don't really like to admit that we do things that are wrong. So we see a brother or a sister that just has some peculiar ways about them. You know. Something about them that's just not quite, you know, right. Doesn't quite fit our fancy. It's real easy then for us to turn on a weak brother or a weak sister and get things going about them that's not pleasing in the sight of God. See, I pastored some people in Texas, in Cushing, Texas, a farm community that could not read nor write. Can you believe somebody that never read the Bible? Now, I do not believe that simply because they couldn't read nor write, that this is just an excuse for them to be ignorant. You know, I believe the Lord, really, I believe the Lord wants everybody to be able to read. Now, you may say, why? Well, because he put it in writing. That's what the Bible's all about. It's the written word of God. So I suppose if he wants us to, to read, somewhere, someplace we've got to learn how to do it. And if he didn't care whether we could read or write, he wouldn't have put it in writing. Now that only makes sense to me. But yet on the other hand, if we have someone who cannot read and somebody who cannot write. Well, we got some CB coming in. So we just have this every now and then. Very few times, but we have now. But if you have a situation like that, or somebody that doesn't have the degree like you have, we have some people in this assembly that have master's degrees. We have some that have not even finished school. And it's real easy for an educated person to look down their nose at some of the logic of a person who is not educated and begin to look at them as being a fool. The truth of the matter is, 
the higher up the scale of education you climb, the greater diversity you find in opinions. Now that's a known fact, friend. See, you can go to four doctors and every last one of them is going to tell you something different. Amen? Now you know I'm telling you the truth. But it's easy sometimes to look at a brother or a sister who has some social problems or educational problems and say, well, you just kind of have to overlook them. You know, they just don't have good sense. Well, you may not say it that, that Well, that's the way you feel in your heart. But you see, the Lord is saying this. To look at your brother and say, thy fool. How can you call him a fool? When he was smart enough to repent of his sins, be buried in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins, and be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ was saying this, to look at a brother or a sister and say, you rascal, are you fool? Friend, if he's that smart, he is a wise man indeed. For it was the wise man who built his house upon the rock. If a man would call a man a fool who's built his house upon the rock, he's in danger of hellfire. Contrary to some of you may believe, I believe this with all of my heart that I am rubbing shoulders with the wisest people on the face of the earth. When I shake your hand, I am secure because you are a wise person. I believe that. Some of the wisest minds in the city of Madison slip here between the four walls church house today. And that should be my attitude toward my brother. This is the reason why I find it very easy to love all of you. Praise God. Even some of you who have done wrong. Even some of you who have failed God. I've failed God before. I've in all probability to do something wrong before I die. And I'm not using that as an excuse or a lie to sin. But attitude toward me should be like it's found in 1 John 3.16. He might perceive with God. And that he down his life for us. So we to lay down our life for the brethren. Listen, you've got to love somebody to die for them. Is that the attitude you have toward your brothers and sisters in the Lord? If not, it's the attitude that you need to have. Renew within me the right attitude. Take not away the life from me. When you get where you don't like to come to church, shoulders with brothers, you don't like to fellowship with them. You know what you need to do? You need to pray through. Now I'm going to say that I don't make many statements like this. Not many statements I make across the pulpit. By other ministers. 
told me not long ago, he said, I don't let my people fellowship. I said, why? He said, well, they get lots of rings going and everything. I said, you don't let them fellowship. You mean to tell me you're going to starve precious people to death simply because you might say something about you? The lifeline of the church is fellowship. If you're supposed to love somebody enough that you die for them and then you won't let them visit each other, friend, you're denying them a woman. And if you ever reach the place, friend, in which you don't like to fellowship with the saints of God, you're in bad shape, period. I know of a lot of people that I feel have a lot of faults and failures, but to sit around and talk about that all the time develops a very adverse, bad attitude that I don't personally like to feel. Turn and shake hands by right now near you. You come right in the line and say, I love you. I really need person. <clears throat> You're just a great person. I'm glad I can rub shoulders with you church with you. <clears throat> hallelujah, hallelujah. You've been a Christian, isn't it? It really is. Be able to come and just shake with everybody. Every now and then I find somebody that doesn't like to shake hands with me and I perfectly situate you're the door when you have to. <clears throat> no, I'm serious with you. I said, I'm not going to pass for anybody who won't shake my hand, look me right in the eye. And quite hold their head down. I said, pick up your head, look me right in the eyes, okay? I want to look you right in the eyes. I love you. Now, what's the problem? Well, brother, you hurt my and I said, well, you're preaching. Well, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Let's talk about it. What's the big thing? Now, you've got some odd against me. We don't want this. Like a cheap movie. That's a Hollywood production. That's crazy. <clears throat> when you can love everybody, shake hands with everybody, feel good good about everybody. That doesn't mean I agree with everything. No, that's not. You know, I agree basically with one person. That's myself. That's why I do what I do. You know, if I were you, I would do it like I do it. That's why the Bible says every man is right in in his own eyes. See? But on the other hand, I know the purpose of mercy. You know, if we were all perfect, we wouldn't need the mercy of God. The mercy of God simply means the withholding of judgment. If God did not have reason to judge us, if God did not have reason to judge us, 
God did not have reason to criticize us. We wouldn't need mercy, friend. And if you want to find out how much you need mercy, you read the Bible, you'll find out. And the only reason that we can stand justified in the presence of God is because of the mercy of God. We can take our problems and our cares and our deficiencies to Calvary and we can roll at the feet of the Lord and cast our cares upon Him and say, Here I am, God. I need you and I need you to cover me. I've disappointed a whole lot of people. I'm disappointed in myself, God. And all of a sudden you can feel that warmth of God's blood begin to And friend, when God's blood takes it away, He casts it into the sea of forgetfulness and He does not remember it again. The devil may come by and accuse you, but what God has forgiven you of, friend, He's forgiven you. And if you don't need mercy... You must be sprouting your wings already. I hope you don't think I'm a compromiser because of what I'm saying. But I think one of the most valuable gifts on the face of the earth is a brother or sister. You know, when I'm down, I need somebody to encourage me. And if I alienate myself from the body of Christ, there's not going to be anybody there. I can tell you something, friend. The booze sippers of the world and the cigarette suckers are not going to come by and encourage you. It's just not found there. It's found in the body of Christ. Now in closing, and I'll read only one scripture, make reference to one more. Acts, the second chapter. Verse 47. What shall our attitude be toward those that are not of the faith? This is an account of the first church, the Pentecost church, the Acts, the second chapter church. The Bible says that they continue to praise God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You know, you're not going to win people to God if your attitude toward them is not right. Basically, you win people to yourself before you win them to your God. And if your attitude's a godly one, You don't even have to wean them away to put them in contact with the Spirit because your attitude comes from God. Isn't it strange that when Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, if he did, when he talked of holiness, he said, follow peace with all men. And holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Why did he put this business of follow peace with all men? Why did he put it there? The holiness of God cannot dwell 
in the heart of a man who's not a peacemaker. Because Jesus Christ himself, the Redeemer of the world, that we talked about so much during this holiday season, is the Prince of Peace. And our attitude toward the people of the world, even though we do not condone the lifestyle that they live, we should love their souls and love them to the point that our mission becomes synonymous with his mission. He came to seek and save that which was lost. You should love them even when they don't love you. Jesus said, hate your enemies. Did you say that? Jesus said, tolerate your enemies. Didn't say that, did he? Jesus said, uh, see if you can get along with your enemies. Jesus said, love. Said together, love. Jesus said what? Love. Now if you're supposed to love God, listen to me. And you're supposed to love each other. And you're supposed to love the world. What kind of a person should you be? A loving person. One where Christians got this attitude that they're supposed to be just downright snots. Hard-headed. Hard to talk to. Bigoted, belligerent, aggressive. Where did the Christian community get that particular spirit? I guess we, because we hate sin, and we should hate sin, and we hate the devil, we just get the attitude that everybody's a big devil, and we're supposed to hate him. Praise God. This is the first day of the year. God bless you. Would you stand? It's a good way to start out the year, isn't it? Sister Grant, praise God. Hallelujah. My dad and mom, this will be their last service. I'm so glad they've been with us. I wish I could just move them up here and just keep them. Praise God. Hallelujah. But they'll be leaving Thursday, and we'll be taking them to Chicago. We'll not be with you in service. I regret that. But uh, Dad and Mom, we're glad that you're here. Amen. Praise God. It's been, it's been a good night. Praise God. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. There is a chorus that we sing here that I really like. We haven't sung it for a long time. It's called the old time religion. Praise God. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. 
It's good enough for me. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. It's good enough for me. Saved our fathers, it has saved our fathers, it has saved our fathers. It's been up for me. Give me that old time religion, give me that old time religion, give me that old time religion. It's been up for me. Was good for Paul and Silas. It was good for Paul and Silas. It was good for Paul and Silas. It's good enough for me. Tis the old time religion. Tis the old time religion. Tis the old time religion. It's good enough for me. It will do when I am dying. It will do when I am dying. It will do when I am dying. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. It will take us all to heaven. It will take us all to heaven. It will take us all to heaven. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. Now, we're going to dismiss you, but we're going to turn around to each other. And we're going to start fellowshipping, and we're going to start singing. Praise God. And you don't have to say anything to anybody except to sing to them. Praise God. And you can just move out if you want to pray. We have someone praying down here. Feel free to come and pray. Remember our service Thursday night. And here's the song that we're dismissing by. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. It's good enough for me. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for me. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. Makes me love everybody. Tis the old time religion, tis the old time religion. 
It's good enough for me. It has saved our fathers. It has saved our fathers. It has saved our fathers. It's good enough for me. It will take us all to heaven. It will take us all to heaven. It will take us all to heaven. 